Welcome to Detoxicity. This is a podcast in which I try to change the narrative around masculinity a little bit and allow some progressive voices and some interesting voices, diverse voices, to come into the picture. My name is Mike Joseph. I host and produce this show, and I thank you very, very much for listening and for supporting from the bottom of my heart. It means a lot. Now, if you enjoy this podcast, I hope that you are subscribing to it. If you aren't, please press the subscribe button on wherever it is you're listening to it, and uh, that way you'll get episodes on demand when they come, uh, which is usually on Wednesday mornings. I also certainly ask that you uh, spread the word. Uh, please rate the podcast on whatever platform you're using to listen. Um, make sure you leave a comment if you have something nice to say or if you have something constructive to say. It doesn't all have to be nice. And by all means, tell your friends, tell anyone who you think might get some creative juice or inspirational juice or just would uh, you'd like to listen to this please spread the word uh, however you can i am on social media if you would like to follow me i am on instagram at detox pod guy uh, my twitter is on hiatus for a little bit it will come back but it is tis mike joseph feel free to follow me on either of those platforms there is also facebook.com slash detoxicity and if you have a comment you can email me detoxpod at gmail.com I am always on the lookout for new guests, so if you know somebody who you think has an interesting story to tell or something to add to the overall conversation around detoxifying masculinity, please reach out to me via any of those platforms, and certainly if you yourself would like to be a part of this podcast, please reach out, let me know. Once again, I thank you for listening. Hey everybody, in this episode we're heading out to Arizona to talk to Sean Wolcott, Sean, like many of the guests on the show, is a creative. He is a musician, a lifelong musician. Uh, by day, he is a technology professional. And Sean has a lot to say about uh, raising a bunch of boys. He has three of his four kids are boys. So we get some parenting tips, as well as some tips growing up in a uh, mixed-race household, uh, even though he is white. He uh, talks about the conservative and liberal divide in his own home uh, with his parents, I guess, Although, if they're his parents and he doesn't live with them, it's not really his own home anymore, but it's the home that he grew up in. Uh, he talks about hitting the big 5-0. Congratulations to him. And we talk a lot about music and the joy of being able to connect with people through art. So uh, strap on your seatbelts, enjoy the ride, and uh, enjoy my conversation with Sean. Sean Walcott. I am many things. I'm a dad. I'm a husband. I'm a nine to fiver. I'm a musician, sports nerd, soccer nerd, music nerd, movie nerd, you name it. All, all encompassing I, nerd. Absolutely. That's the way it should be. Why limit yourself? <laughs> would, would you put any of those titles in front of any other? Definitely dad and husband. I really pride myself on being the best dad I can, I, my wife and I were like a mini Brady Bunch. It's not our first marriage, so we combined families. Both have two kids. I got the oldest and the youngest, and our uh, oldest is 21 now, which is hard to wrap my head around. <laughs> L living on his own with two roommates, and that's kind of crazy. But I also have the youngest. My daughter is the youngest of the bunch. She's nine. So and you're, then, you're uh, covering the spread there. Covering the spread. And then we got two. And then her boys are, are 19 and... Okay. So yeah, a lot of boys. <laughs> right on. So this makes you perfect to be on this podcast about masculinity because you have a Absolutely. lot of experience. <laughs> well, yeah, I'm I'm immersed in it, and as is my wife, being the only uh, being the only woman, the only but, woman uh, in the house. Yeah, for I sure. wonder what that's like for her. She loves it because I think part of the reason why we work so well is we're very similar, we're very well rounded, and I try to teach the boys: don't pigeonhole yourself into one thing that you're interested in. If you got a creative side, embrace it. Obviously, be creative. If you like sports, enjoy sports. If you like movies, enjoy movies. And learn, if you like music, explore different types of music. And she's of the same attitude. So we kind of instill that in all our kids that, hey, the, there's a lot of great things to go out there to, to explore. And don't hesitate to look for new things and, and learn new things. So we're both on the same page there for sure. That's fantastic. Do you find it difficult... Because you've got one kid that's 
definitely still at the beginning stages and you have one kid who's now a full-fledged adult. Do you mm -hmm. find it easier to raise a kid now or did you find it more difficult, say, 10 years ago when your oldest kid was 11? Well, I would say back then was harder because I, from my first marriage, we got divorced and I took the unusual step of actually having majority custody of our son, which back then we got divorced in 2004. Yes, 2004. And it was kind of unusual back then for the dad to have the majority custody of, of a child. And to my ex's credit, she recognized some things about herself mentally, emotionally that prevented her, I think, from being at the time the best parent that she could. She recognized that I was better suited to take on the majority role and I embraced it. And I was alone for, for a while and Alicia's my, my third marriage, third time's the charm, <laughs> but made some mistakes on a second marriage that frankly should never have happened. And thankfully it was short-lived, but in between that time, I'm raising my son primarily on my own because he's only with his biological mom every other weekend. So I think that taught me a lot. It showed me a couple of things. It showed me, first of all, I can do this. Sure. And make no mistake about it for those listening that are parents and have been single parents at any point, it is hard. You need a good support system, whether it be family, friends, whatever the case may be. And I'm very thankful that I had that. But it proved that, hey, I can do this. And it set the stage for being a stepdad to two amazing boys and the father to a nine-year-old that's going on 20. And it's just <laughs> ridiculous. But it definitely prepared me, which, which was awesome. That's awesome. So I guess going back even further to when you were growing, were there any lessons that you took from the way that you were raised and applied them to the way that you raised your kids or your stepkids? Oh, uh, yeah, for sure. Um, an only child. I found out years later I had half-sisters. My biological father got around, let's just put it that way. But primarily I was raised as an only child and it was me and my mom for my first five years. And then she met my stepdad and he's been my dad ever since. What it taught me is right from the get-go is my stepdad is is Mexican-American. And it taught, it. I saw from an early age, and as I got older and really able to recognize how different people treated not only him, but my mom. And it was very eye-opening, especially when I got in my teen years. But it also just showed me even without having my parents to say anything, it just showed me that people are people, man. <laughs> it Here's a guy who looks different from me. We'd go visit his family in California and his grandmother didn't speak a word of English. His mom didn't speak a word of English. But as soon as I was 12 years old, the first time I went over there, and as soon as I walked in the door, his grandmother, who's all of like four foot nothing, right, <laughs> sees me and comes up and gives me this, never met this woman before in my life. She's saying something in Spanish. She comes up to me and gives me this massive hug and won't let go <laughs> to the point of like people have to pry her away. So- just stuff like that. It's like, who cares what we look like, what language we speak, whatever. I walk in the house and they give, she gives me this hug and everybody did the same, treated me the same. And I, I was treated like one of the family when I walked in the house. And that's a beautiful thing. And my mom and I were the only two white people there. And so growing up, it taught me that. And that's something that we teach our, especially our boys. My wife, Elisa, and I, we kind of joke about it. We have a basic saying for the boys, and that is, don't be a dick. Hey, the what, Sean? Don't that be, a, be dick. a basic saying for everyone. <laughs> that should be the number one life rule. Exactly. Don't be a dick. Treat people with respect. Doesn't matter who they are, what they are, what they look like, who they love. Doesn't matter. Don't be a dick. It's pretty simple. It's pretty simple. And they take it in stride. They have a wide collection of friends of different likes and ethnicities and you name it, and they're living that. And I think showing them that, again, back to that, life needs to be lived. And part of the experiences are the people you meet. That's some of the best experiences you can have. Absolutely. Absolutely. So yeah, that definitely taught me a lot growing up, for sure. I, I bet. Thinking back to your childhood, do you have a relationship with your birth dad or, or 
Was it just kind of like? Not a lot. So he passed away in 2004. Okay. So growing up, because I think especially as a boy, and I think my youngest stepson has, has kind of encountered this a little bit with his father that lives in Philadelphia. He hardly ever sees his father. But at a younger age, especially with boys, you have this almost romanticized vision of your father, right? Absolutely. And even though I had a great stepdad, this this guy's my father. But the thing is, I think on from the time that I could remember to maybe the time I was about 18, I think I saw my biological father maybe, I can count on one hand, how many times I actually saw him. And... I remember one time in high school, I loved playing soccer when I had this vision of, man, maybe I could be like the field goal kicker on the football team, put my soccer skills to work, right? Or be the punter. Because I was a smaller kid. The idea of running around, getting hit or hitting somebody just wasn't going to happen. But hey, maybe I can kick the ball, you know? Right. So he found that out. And I remember him calling me one time, encouraging me. And I'm like, listen, let's go, man, this is this is cool. And he made promises to me saying, man, here in, I'm in Arizona and I grew up an Arizona State Sun Devil fan. And he had Arizona State season football season tickets, right? So he called me, oh, I'm going to take you to a game. And he took me to a game. And I'm thinking, oh, man, this is cool. And that's when I told him about how I want to be a football. I was like, oh, I can help you. Let's meet at the park and blah, blah, blah. That never happened. Never happened. And I think that was when I realized, and as I got older, you, you start talking to your mom a little bit more in depth about, okay, what happened? Right. And then when you find out that basically your father walked out on your mom right after you were born. I was like, whoa, <laughs> that's a gut punch. Right. It's the hero takes a fall pretty much. Absolutely. So we just never connected until I went to college and I was going to Arizona state. And then he reached out again. And I remember we went to lunch a couple times, nothing much. And then again, crickets. And then he'd get back in my life more prominently after my son was born. And I saw him more often than I had by far previously in my life. And I remember kind of wrestling with it. Do I want this man even to be in the picture at all? And I kind of wrestled it with myself. And I'm like, it's still my son's biological grandfather. I want my son to at least have that and have some memory of him. But it was pretty short-lived because he didn't live much longer after that. I think my son was three, three and a half when he passed away. So I'm, I'm very thankful that I had a good relationship with my stepdad because I don't know what that would have been like with my biological father if I didn't have that already kind of foundation. It could have been much different. Right. I would imagine so. I and mean, speaking as someone who... Uh didn't know his dad until fairly recently and didn't have a great relationship with his stepfather. I, I, I can definitely see the other side of the coin uh, from that experience. So I get it. And you did luck out by having a good relationship with your stepdad. Absolutely. Um, you mentioned your stepdad being Mexican mm -hmm. and being experienced to different cultures early on. Now, I, mm -hmm. I've never been to Arizona, <laughs> so I know nothing about Gotta Arizona. come visit. I would love to. I know nothing about Arizona other than the Phoenix Suns. And I don't know how racially diverse Arizona. I mean, I know there there are a lot of, of mm -hmm. Latinx people yeah. in Arizona. Yes. But outside of the home, yeah. was your upbringing diverse? Or, or? I wouldn't say overly so. My parents still live in the house that I grew up in. Oh, wow. Which is, which is kind of cool. My mom first moved to Arizona and built that house in 1967. So she's been here a long time. Yeah. With her first husband, but he passed away before she met my father. And I grew up in a pretty middle-class, mostly white neighborhood. Growing up, there were a few other kids of, of different ethnicities, but not overwhelmingly. So I remember in my neighborhood, these two twins, gosh, I can't remember their names. It's a long time ago. Reggie and Ronnie. Reggie and Ronnie. Yes. Yes. Reggie and Ronnie. They were these two twins, African-American. They, they had moved about a street over and they happened to go to my school, my elementary school. They were a year younger than me. But I remember meeting them at school and we hit it off. We started talking sports and we started hanging out. And again, didn't think twice about what color. I didn't care. We had something in common. Cool. Let's hang out. And 
my high school, not very diverse at all, probably even less so than my elementary, but why that is, I don't know. It just happens to be the neighborhood that I grew up in. Yeah, it's got to um, be geography. Yeah. When I first walked on campus at Arizona State, that's when I really saw the diversity and it was awesome. And I remember thinking at the time how I wish I could have had that earlier in my life. But at the same time, I was thankful to at least be, to be experience that and, and be able to meet other people in different backgrounds. Cause you go to university, you get people coming from different all countries, over the country, you know, right, all over yeah, the, world. the world. Yeah. And it was awesome. I loved it. But to go back to your, your original thought is we do have, do have a, a pretty diverse overall population between whether it be Latin, Mexican, different original Spanish speaking cultures that are coming here, which is beautiful. And I think that's one thing that drives me nuts a little bit because of this white fear of, of different people. What are you afraid of? And I think in this state, because it is getting more and more and more diverse, there's a lot of people that are pushing back on it. I happen to live in outside of Phoenix. We moved here last year and this is a very conservative area, which I kind of struggle with because I'm definitely not <laughs> conservative. Neither is my wife and we're not bringing up our boys that way. But at the same time, you have to be open with understanding that there's other people around you that are working in businesses or working in shops. So you may go into restaurants that I'm driving down the road. I see a truck waving a, a Trump flag or let's go Brandon or something stupid like that. And I'm right. just driving, I'm shaking my head going, Ugh. but my neighborhood. I wonder if there's a way to combat that without putting yourself in severe harm's way. That's a great question. Let me preface my answer by saying that down the road, we, we live in a town that isn't officially um, a town. It's just a township. It's not a city. So we're using a lot of services from other areas. So there's a lot of uh, leeway for people to be able to sell things on the side of the road. Oh, I'm often driving down the main drag here to, to go towards uh, some of the main areas. And there's dudes selling ammo. Oh, right? <laughs> so again, I'm shaking my head going... I just can't wrap my head around that. So I, I say that in preface to your to your question about being safe. And the way I look at it is I'm going to go back to my previous thing that we teach, teach our boys. Don't be a dick. Right. And I've met a lot of people already. In fact, I just went to a buddy's house last week. Met a lot of people that I guarantee you, if we started talking politics, we would be on the very, very, very opposite end of the spectrum. Politics never came up. We had a great time. Nice people. So I think we got to understand and we got to realize that adage of we're really not as different as I think some people make us out to be. Some of us are, absolutely. Mm -hmm. But I'm talking the majority of people. And I think if, if we approach it that way, and if, I know this is the way I approach it, this is the way I teach, teach my boys as well. There's certain lines that, that if somebody crosses with me, that's a different story. If I see blatant racism, if I see blatant homophobia, if I see anything like that, you're not in my world, right? I love politics, love it. And there's a part of my life where I, I even toyed with the idea of maybe getting into it. Really? I love talking. I, I love talking politics, and I've, I have no problem talking with people that I can have differences of opinion. Because again, that's a great way to learn not only about the person but also learn from a different perspective. I mean, I agree with your opinion, but. If we can have a dialogue and answer some questions about each other or answer some questions about some opinions, even though we may have some different opinions, but we treat each other with respect. Cool. I'm good. But again, if, if those lines are crossed, nah, I'm, I'm done. I'm not going to tolerate that. And I think the vast majority of people don't tolerate that. And that's kind of the hope that I hold on to with a lot of the craziness that's going on right now. That's the hope that I hold on to. And, and I try to install my boys as well. Trying to hold on to that hope too, man. <laughs> nah, I hear you, man. So how did your politics get shaped? How did you become the person that you are? I've actually asked myself that question. And the reason why I say that is, so picture my dinner table growing up. I'm sitting on the, uh, the one side, my mom's in the middle, and then my stepdad's on the other side. 
my mom would always say, I'm a Republican, but I vote for who I think is the best candidate. I don't care what letter they have by their name. And she lived that. And as she got older, she became, I think, more a little bit left. She was always kind of center, but she became a little bit more left on her beliefs. She voted for Bill Clinton. She voted for Obama twice, but she never changed her party affiliation. My stepdad did the opposite. He started getting even more to the right as I got older. So I started learning even in, I would say, probably early middle school, seventh, eighth grade. I started to to kind of see, just looking at the world and looking uh, at things, where where my beliefs were shaping. And I I started to realize that, hey, I'm pretty left. And I believe that uh, government should be working for the people and helping each other up. It doesn't mean it's doing everything for everybody, but it's helping everybody to at least have a chance. That's all people want. Yeah, They want to have a fair shot. And there's still too much of that in this country where people simply don't have a fair shot. And that's not right. And that shaped my belief. So the dinner table, my stepdad and I would get in some heated discussions, even at a young age. And as I got older, I learned that you can't get too heated because then any progress you could have possibly made from that conversation is gone. As soon as one side gets heated, I guess it you might as well just completely change the subject because that it, it's done. Nothing productive is going to happen. But it took me a while to get there because I was pretty, <laughs> hot-headed, pretty hot-headed back then. I, is some people still haven't gotten there yet? I, I I struggle with it. It's hard. It's hard not to sometimes, man. Yeah. You hear some people say stuff. So I'm like, what? <laughs> it's it's hard to be calm sometimes in the face of ignorance or in the face of hatred. I I, I feel like absolutely. Yeah. And I'm on the outside looking in on that in your world. And as some, you know, I've long considered myself an ally. And as an ally, I got to respect whether they be different ethnicity, whether they love somebody else, uh, some other type of person than me, whatever the case may be. I got to be able to take a step back and listen and imagine what what it is to be in their shoes to understand. I'm never going to be there. That's as close as I'm going to get right. is being able to listen. It scares me to think what a lot of people in this country face on a daily basis for no good reason whatsoever. Right. Just that they are who and what they are or yeah. they love who they love. Yeah. Yeah. And it's sad because diversity is a beautiful thing. I mean, how boring would our existence be if we all look the same, love the same, listen to the same music, like the same movies? You go on down the list. It would be an awful existence. And going back to teaching the boys of of talking to different people, learning about people, asking questions, finding out more about people. That's one of the greatest joys of us being on this planet is being able to learn new things from other people and learn about things of other people. And that only is is beneficial to the person you're talking to, but it's immensely beneficial to us as the human being asking the questions as well. Yeah. But so (laughs) I can't pigeonhole as to why I leaned left at a young age. I I really don't know the honest answer to that. All I know is that's about the timeframe that it started to happen. And, and it only got more so my dad would say, Oh, when you get older, you're going to get more conservative. <laughs> That's what they all say. I know. I, I, yeah, it's definitely been the opposite for me, and it sounds like it's been the same for you as well. I'm 50 now, and it ain't happening. <laughs> <You know? laughs> so, and I think one thing, too, I'll, I'll share this story about my mom, and this was really eye-opening to me from her perspective. Because, again, grew up Republican. She talked about how she worked on the Eisenhower campaign when she was a teenager. But uh, this was shortly after President Obama first got elected. And I'm at my old job. I'm in my office. And she calls me up. I'm like, hey, mom, what's, what's going on? And I could hear the tone in her voice that she's really upset and frustrated over something. So I take my phone. I go outside and I'm like, what's going on? And she's like, well, I, I just have never encountered such hate. And I was like, mom, what are you talking about? Back up. What's going on? 
And she proceeded to tell me that, again, because she was registered Republican, she still got all the Republican mailers, right? She had got one. And the way she described it is like, it's, it's, it's all lies. And I'm listening to my mom and I'm nodding my head. I'm going, yeah. And she starts describing, and I can't remember some of the questionnaires, but they were so sided to one thing. It was clearly obvious what they were trying to get mm-hmm. at, right? And then what was really, really awesome for me as a son, and, and I couldn't have been more proud of my mom because she kind of had an epiphany. She's like, I, I've never seen such hatred for a president, and I can only come to one conclusion as to why. And I was like, yeah. Yep. <laughs> I mean, at the time, my mom was, it was probably early wow. 70s. And for my mom in her early 70s to have this eye-opening moment of this is the world we're in now. And she was just disgusted. So I hear the stories all the time of her and my stepdad getting into it with things because obviously she didn't support Trump. He did. And so they kind of go to their separate corners and- <laughs> <laughs> when I go visit him, I walk in the house. I was like, are you guys watching your propaganda again? Because she's in there watching like CNN. He's watching Fox News. I'm like, turn that off. Come turn together. Turn TV. Listen to some music. Or, play yeah, cards. Watch a movie. Do, yeah. do something else. Yeah. You know? Um, but I guess when you get that age, it goes in ear, one ear and out the one other. One ear and out the other. <laughs> There's always the sense you that you're still the kid, right? So Yeah. Like, what do I know? I'm only a 50-year-old dad that's experienced <laughs> a lot you know, in his life, but I haven't experienced much as them, of course. But You're, you're always going to be 12. Exactly. <laughs> so one thing I love about you, and you mentioned it a couple of times, is that you're nerdy about a lot of things. Yes. I wasn't aware of the extent to which you were politically nerdy, <laughs> but yes. you've, you've got your Star Wars shirt on. We mm-hmm. talk about music online. Uh, that's how yes. we initially connected. There's all your sports guys. Where did your passion for so many things come from? Because it's hard to focus, right? Like we're living in an ADHD world. Oh, yeah. And sure. um, I, I don't necessarily know that people are super passionate about multiple things yeah. anymore. And that's sad. I find that sad because, again, there's so many great things. And obviously there's going to be some things you're more passionate about than others. Like primarily my biggest passion is music. And I get that from my mom. My mom is a performer, was a performer. She finally retired at performing at 83. My goodness. Yeah. Towards the end of her, I want to call it her career. She was in a, a group made up of mostly seniors and they would perform at like nursing homes and things like that. And she'd be performing for people younger than her. Okay. And she's like, I'm older than they are. They are. Look, <laughs> at, look at me. I'm still going. So she could sing. She could dance. She can act. She can do anything. One of my earliest memories when I was in kindergarten is she was involved in a local production of Kiss Me Kate. And I don't remember this, but my mom tells the story that she would take me to the rehearsals after her work. She worked at uh, Motorola for almost 40 years. And she took me to this rehearsal and I'm going to nerd out a little bit because I grew up on Broadway and show tunes and all that. It kissed me, Kate, there's a song called Brush Up Your Shakespeare. And apparently I loved that so much. I asked them during the rehearsal to sing it three straight times. Wow. <laughs> and they accommodated me, which was awesome. I grew up in an ELCA, Evangelical Lutheran Church of America church, which for lack of a better way to put it, is the most liberal of the Lutheran churches. They okay. allow they allow female pastors, which was great. But I grew up singing there and then did some children's theater when I was younger. And then when I got into high school, we did a production of Oklahoma that uh, I was in. And then my big moment, my senior year, I was in- Greece, Sean? I played Johnny Casino and the Teen Angel. So at the time- I, I auditioned. I, I wanted to be Danny. I want to be the lead. Sure, of course. And I thought it was good enough. And I remember being initially upset about it. And the director kind of pulled me aside. And he said, hey, could you have been Danny? Absolutely. I think you could have been a good Danny. And this was just a student-led production. He's like, there isn't anybody else in this school that can do, that can sing beauty school dropout. You're the only one that can do it. I need you to do this. Whether he was being honest with me or not or whatever, that definitely gave me the confidence to to go out there. And 
I remember opening night, I sing the last little line. And that was the first time I found out that I had a falsetto that I still use today in my band, which is great. I'm 50 and I can still do, hey. do my falsetto, which I take pride in. Yeah, seriously. But, uh, I hit the last note and I hand the fake diploma to the girl that's playing Frenchie. For those who are familiar with Greece, and the crowd goes nuts. You do rehearsals and you do your run throughs, and the director always goes, okay, and applause, 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 and then you move on. Well, the problem is, is I have an outro. I have to, and by the way, I was lowered. <laughs> they put it on the big battens up above. They attached a schoolyard with the metal here and the little seat. That's what I came down on. And then I had to exit out of that, right? That sounds unsafe. Oh, it was immensely unsafe. (laughs) I was high up too. Thankfully, I'm not afraid of heights, so it wasn't a big deal. But yeah, the crowd goes nuts. And I never forget Jenny, who played Frenchie, still a good friend of mine. She looks at me and she's like, what do we do? And I was like, I don't know. And finally, I just started singing the next part to to go up the stairs and do my outro. And then the the, the applause died down. I have, you know, I've sung in my church. I've done other things. But that moment was like, whoa, this is pretty cool. (laughs) I may want to look at doing something in this performing thing. So I ended up getting a, a vocal performance scholarship to Arizona State and started my journey there. But it was short lived because. I found out, unfortunately, that they changed the curriculum in between the two semesters that I was there and a lot of the classes that I wanted to take were no longer an option. And so I had mm. to make a decision on, do I want to stick with this scholarship and do it in a way that I have no interest in, or do I go a different path? So I ended up choosing a different path. But being at ASU, that did lead me to being in my first band, which was a train wreck, for lack of a better term. I answered an ad. They put an ad all around campus. I'm sure the others that have been on college campuses, they have these kiosks where you can put up advertisements or notes or whatever. Sure. And there was an ad for a band looking for a singer. I was like, oh, I could sing. I call up and, and we talk and it seemed like we had a lot in common. At the time, I was very much into the indie alternative type of scene. And they kind of wanted to do that. One of my favorite bands is the Ocean Blue at the time. And that was our stick. We wanted to try to sound like the Ocean Blue, and we failed miserably. It was not good. <laughs> Thankfully, no members of the Ocean Blue ever heard anything we did. But it was my first taste. It was my first taste of, okay, I've done the theater thing. Now let's try this writing your own music and doing that. So that kind of set me on on that path after that. And you still do it. Still do it. Yeah. I've been playing here in Arizona. I really don't count that first band. That was like 91 because we played like house parties. So I didn't start playing the actual clubs and stuff like that in Arizona until 93, but I've been playing here ever since. And in my early days, it was original music, trying to get signed and all that. And my 20s had a chance to, to tour supporting another band for about four to five months, which was awesome. That was so much fun playing in tiny little places like in Montana and Oregon. And it was great. I wouldn't have changed a thing. And I'm grateful that, uh, that I have a spouse that is also a performer. She's a singer who frankly should be singing more because she's immensely talented. I get her up to sing on a few things that I do once in a while when she feels up to it, but she understands that pull. We do covers, but the way I describe it is we still approach it. We still put that kind of original spin on the diversity of the songs, as well as how we construct the songs with different mashups and things like that. And it makes it a lot of fun. Performance fun, man. It's my drug of choice. Being, <laughs> being on stage is my drug of choice because there's nothing like it. And for those that are musicians, they'll understand this. The best moment that I can still remember still gives me chills, still gives me goosebumps. You have those moments in your life where you can close your eyes and you can picture it perfectly. Right down to how it smelled. So I'm in one of my original bands and I'm performing. I'm singing a song that I wrote, my words. I look in the crowd and as I'm singing, there's this girl that I don't know, I've never met before, who's singing my words right back to me. And it it threw me off at first. But even if it's just one person, for whatever reason... This song connected with them. Somehow, some way, it connected to them. And she wasn't mumbling the words, man. She was singing them. Top of her lungs. Sing it, yeah. That is 
so cool. So that's when like I go to shows and I can't imagine it's times a thousand when you go to a show at a bigger venue and there's a big band and everybody's singing the words to their songs. That's still got to be such a rush for them. They may have sung that song 15,000 times. But yeah, man, you I get can't. All those people singing your words. It's amazing. I, I would have to imagine that at some point, John Bon Jovi is probably jaded from seeing people in the crowd singing Living on a Prayer back to him like <laughs> 20 million times. But I also wonder how can you get jaded when it's something that you put on the earth, something that you started, that you're responsible for, and somebody's having such an emotional response to it. I can't imagine ever getting tired of that or ever feeling like that's old or ever taking it for granted because it's such a special thing. And look, I know how music has affected me my entire life. If I were in that situation, make somebody else have the feeling that I get when I hear uh, uh, Ain't No Sunshine or, or Moon Dancer, mm-hmm. I, I don't think I could ever possibly take that for granted. I would just kind of lose my shit every time that that happened. <laughs> no, I'm with you. I don't think I could ever get tired of that. And it happened a few other times. That was that first time that it happened. But obviously, I'm never to the scale of a band that made it, but it was still the same rush. Did you have rock star aspirations or was music always sort of like, I'm going to have a nine to five and then do music? No. So it, what happened was, is I mentioned the that little mini tour that I went on. At the time, I'd eventually decided that I was going to be a high school teacher. And I was actually uh, to teach uh, literature, English. And I am a book nerd too. But I was doing my student teaching at the time. And my band got an opportunity to open for this other band that was signed that needed a local band to help them out with opening shows. And so I was like, okay, do I continue my student teaching or do I go on tour? I'm going to go on tour. So looking back on it, in hindsight, it's 2020. There's a lot of things that I wish I would have done differently to maybe help myself from a, a business standpoint. Because we had so many people tell us how good we were, but we had no idea what the hell we were doing mm. from a management standpoint. So as an adult, knowing about a little bit more of the business side of it, I wish I would have had either that knowledge or been smart enough to really find other people that had that knowledge to really help. Because... There's so many musicians that I've met that are so incredibly talented and you see them and you're like, how are they here? Yeah. Why is this not being broadcasted to the millions upon millions of people that surely would love this? And that's the reality of it is you got to be in the right place at the right time. You got to know the right people. And I thought, Hey, this is our chance. And it didn't uh, come to fruition. And I came back into town and realized, though, that I didn't know if I could be a teacher for a lot of reasons. One of the main reasons is here in Arizona, we do not prioritize education whatsoever. It's just ironic how every year we're near the bottom. And then every year we have the governor or whoever say, oh, we're going to do this for education and nothing ever happens. So I was a little jaded at that. So um Still doing my music, getting in other bands and writing some stuff, but I, I started working in retail and that's how I ended up getting involved in selling technology. I had a buddy in the late nineties that was working for a technology company in sales. And he's like, Hey, you should come over. At the time, I didn't know anything about technology. I don't know anything about computers. What are you talking about? He's like, Oh, you don't need to. We'll teach you. It's like, how to sell. You can talk to people. Yeah. I'll talk to anybody. So he's like, you're perfect. So I've been in that industry since, <laughs> since 98. Wow. Yeah. And with that said, you're still able to play music and has playing the music been able to be uh, a stress reliever for you? Because you've got the nine to five, you're dealing with four children, which I mean, one child is a lot. Four children is (laughs) four times as much. Yeah. Uh, I feel like everyone should have hobbies and side gigs beyond the day job and the family. So. Has that been a good sort of other option for you? A good sort of way to shake off the stress of the day-to-day? Yeah. Absolutely. It's a stress reliever. It's a chance to showcase another side of me. And I say that because I I got a good buddy of mine that when he first saw me play, because I'm wearing my glasses now and 
and I wear glasses during the day. But when I go perform, I put on my contacts. I try to look the part as much as you can when you're a 50 year old dude now, but that's beside the point. Um, (laughs) But the first time he saw me, he's like, it's almost like Clark Kent Superman. I was like, what do you mean? He's like, you take off your glasses, you get up on stage. I didn't know you had that in you. And I love that. I love surprising people because I know I'm pretty reserved. When it comes to music and it comes to singing, the way I tell people is I have confidence in my abilities, but I always know I can get better no matter how long I've been doing it. And you got to be gracious. When somebody comes up to you and compliments, they're taking their time out of it and they enjoyed it. And that's what it's all about. And the end of the day is you want to make the audience enjoy what you did. And if they're coming up to you. And a lot of musicians I've met over the years that just have this holier than thou attitude. And I'm like, come on. And thankfully I've met plenty that have every right to have that attitude that don't, which is so beautiful. I, I love that ability to surprise people, like I said, but have that other aspect of my life. Because what you see on stage is a part of me, but it's not the part of my everyday life. And I don't want to bring that stage persona into my everyday life because it just doesn't fit. It wouldn't fit that part of me. If I wouldn't have that outlet, it would be really difficult. And again, I'll give credit to my wife that she recognizes that and supports it. So yeah, I haven't given myself a timetable on how long I want to keep performing, but I can tell you that it's not anytime soon. (laughs) Yeah. Why not just do it until you don't feel like doing it anymore? Yeah. Yeah. If it's not fun anymore, because I'm again, uh, hey, it's great to get paid for what you do. But at the same time, this isn't my livelihood. I I tried to do that. That was when I was younger in my 20s. Didn't quite make it. Had a chance to open up for big acts along the way. And it was a lot of fun. But but now it's just about the fun of it. It's about the enjoyment of it. And that should always be the the most important part. But I think... Unfortunately, when music becomes more the music business, unfortunately, and I've met a lot of performers that have lost that love of performing because it becomes that business too much. And that's sad because I've met a lot of great performers who, man, you'd see them and they're just like incredible. Couldn't take your eyes off them. Then you see them a couple years later and they're like a shell of themselves performing because that stress of that music business side of it is just taking its toll and their artistry is taking a lower priority. Right. So you mentioned uh, a little while ago that you just turned 50. And, yeah. yeah. Uh, I'll be 51 in August. Uh, <laughs> oh, wow. Okay. So I, I, I'm a couple of years away, but I'm like on third base right now. <laughs> when you turned 50, was there a holy crap, I made it to 50, like a triumphant thing? Was there a holy crap, I'm 50 fright? <laughs> or fear kind of thing like or, yeah. or did you just not care i think of a, a little bit of the, the of both of celebrating because we only get one shot at this and the thoughts that crossed my head the most was there's that time when you're a teenager and whether your parents or somebody else turns that magical 50 and you're like holy shit that's old it's like oh my god i can't imagine <laughs> and now that i'm 50 i'm like it's really not that old. <laughs> I mean, that's a philosophical way to look at it. I, I think when we were younger, 50, it felt like, I don't know, like you were in your twilight years and I'm almost 46. And I, I mean, my body doesn't necessarily feel as young as it used mm. to, but mm-hmm. mentally, I still feel like there's so much to learn, so much to experience. I'm with you hundred percent on that for sure. That's a great way to put it. Physically. I mean, you wake up and you're sore. You're sore in places you didn't even know you had before. Right. It's like, what? Right. It's like, I was just sleeping. I didn't do anything. <laughs> I was just sleeping. What is this? But I still have that, that yearn. I'm a knowledge junkie. I love learning new things. And I think that's probably part of the reason why I've stayed in technology for so long is you're constantly learning in technology. That's why I still have a love for music. Part of this, my musical journey, going to Coachella for the first time, in 2004. Oh, wow. And I ended up going to 10 Coachellas. That's how I met uh, a lot of people that I know that you, you know, some of them as well. I first met them because of going to Coachella and finding other people that were my age at the time in our early thirties at the time and a little bit and younger, but finding these same people that had the same drive of this joy of discovering new music. And sometimes new music isn't just a new artist. Sometimes you discover artists that have been around for decades and either 
you haven't heard them or maybe you've never really sat down with an album. And then when you finally do, you're like, man, this is some good shit. When you, you start diving yeah. and you start getting a little bit more and, and that's awesome. I love that. Love that. Do you think that that keeps you young? Because I feel like a lot of people, mm. again, kind of get to a certain age and they just like, what? I know everything. I've heard everything. I've seen everything. I've done everything. And now I'm just going to become an old cranky person <laughs> and talk about how kids suck nowadays and there's not any, there's yep. no good music anymore. And yeah, yeah pronouns and, you know. <laughs> oh my God. Oh, for sure. I have a lot of friends that God love them, but they're trapped in the 80s or they're trapped in the 90s. They don't think anything good came out after 1994. And I think that's the biggest difference now when it comes to music is you have to be a little bit more creative to find a lot of different music. If you're just yeah. listening to basic radio, you are, you're, you're just a tiny little silo of music that you can hear in that. You have to go to festivals like Coachella back in the day was definitely really about promoting a lot of independent bands that normally wouldn't get that exposure. And there's a lot of other festivals that do the same thing now, but whether it be an internet podcasts, things like that, there's so many ways to discover new music now that, that I didn't have as a kid. You didn't have as a kid that wasn't around, but that's the thing is you got to look for it a little more. It's not going to find you unless somebody's recommended something to you, which is also a great way to, to find out music, but. Oh yeah. Yeah. I mean, there's been so many bands that I'm so thankful that, this person recommended or this person recommended. And then and I can evangelize how good they are and, and start this chain of people getting into this particular artist. So yeah, I love it. That's awesome. So I, I try to close on a somewhat profound question. Sure. Um, and again, you're raising four kids. What is something that you have tried to instill in your kids that you wish had been instilled into you when you were growing up? Mm, wow. That's a good question. First thing that comes to mind is more of, and this is a good segue to the overreaching topic of your podcast, which by the way is fantastic. I got to throw that out. I love, thank you. I love thank what you. you're doing this. I've had a chance to listen to a lot of the, the interviews and I think it's a great thing that you're doing, but I think it goes back to the theme of your podcast too, because of being a man and being open to expressing yourself, not being afraid to share your feelings. I could talk to my mom somewhat, but if it was anything even remotely heavy, no, could not talk to my stepdad. That's not, he's a man's man. Nope. We don't cry. We don't show emotion. And I, I'm an emotional guy. I got that from my mom for sure. I'll cry at a good movie. And that's the other thing too, is as I've gotten older and I've had kids and I don't know if anybody else can relate to this too, but I got more emotional. I'll see something that tugs at a heartstring that has to do with kids or something like that. And I'm like tears welling up and I'm like, what, what's going on here? But ultimately I think that's it. Recognizing that Expressing yourself, expressing your feelings, being able to talk about it isn't a sign of weakness. It's actually just the opposite of understanding your strength to know that, hey, there are some things that I need some advice on or I need some help on. I can't tackle this by myself. I need another perspective, whatever the case may be. And, and I didn't really have that from as a whole growing up, but definitely more so from my, my stepdad. And I'm trying to show the boys that it's okay. And the, the other thing too, that we tell our kids is we're not going to be your best friend. We're going to be your parent, which is a deeper connection. And I think that's a problem too, is I think a lot of parents try to be the best friends to their kids. I think that can set up for a lot of pitfalls down the road because think about all the friends that we've had and those times that you didn't tell that friend a hundred percent something because you didn't want to hurt their feelings mm -hmm. or you, for whatever reason, you kind of held back a little bit as parents, you can't hold back. You got to be honest. You got to tell them the truth. And you try to instill that. We try to instill that in our boys. You know, my daughter's a little bit younger yet to, to do this, but, but especially with the boys being teenagers is it, don't be afraid to talk about anything. 
because we'll tell you the truth. We're not going to be judgmental. And you have a safe space here. And you can say all that. It's still hard sometimes for boys to get them out of their for shell sure. and you ask a million questions to try to get the answer. But I think the one thing is that we're consistent about it. I think that's what the key is you got to be consistent about it and show them that, yeah, it's okay. Dudes can be vulnerable too at times. There's no shame in that. And I think that's been such a big sea change, I think, for a lot of people in this country. Some people embrace it and some people look at it like, oh my God, you know, what is this? Some of those old habits are so hard to break. And if you don't realize you need to break them, whether as a parent or as a child or whatever situation you find yourself in, it just turns out to be a rough situation. You keep finding yourself in these weird corners like how did i get here what should i do and and unless you have the the emotional intelligence you're not going to get out of them yeah that's a great way to put it i got to give it up to sean for taking the time out to participate in this uh, recording this podcast so uh sean smartly does not have a whole lot of social footprint he is on facebook sean wolcott but uh otherwise you can't follow him anywhere and uh, good on you because limiting social media is a really, really good thing. I also got to give a shout out to my friend Crispin Cott, who uh, is on this podcast probably a hundred or so episodes ago, but he connected me with uh, quite a few of the people that have done this show since, uh, including Sean. So uh, thank you, Crispin. And if you want to go back and listen to his episode, feel free and do so. And I'm not going to change the outro of the show just yet, but just letting y'all know I am back on Twitter and now my Twitter and Instagram handles match. So if you want to find me on any social media at all, look for Detox Pod Guy. Thanks, Thanks very much. Thanks for listening to the Detoxicity Podcast. My name is Mike Joseph. Once again, if you want to find me online, hit me up on Instagram at DetoxPodGuy. I'm on Twitter intermittently at TizMikeJoseph. You can go to Facebook.com slash Detoxicity. You can email me, DetoxPod at gmail.com. Love to hear constructive criticism. Love to hear feedback. Would love if you are a potential guest or you know somebody who you think could be a potential guest, please, by all means, reach out to me. And remember, if you enjoyed this podcast, subscribe, rate, comment, do all of the things necessary to push this podcast up in the podcast rankings and get this into as many ears as possible. Tell a friend, do whatever it is you need to do. And uh, thank you once again for listening. I personally want to thank the following people for their support. I'm Calvin Williams, and Jacob Block, Jeff Giles, and Andy Grossman. Thank you very much. I hope all of you stay well, stay safe, and healthy. Until next time.